The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, before we get started, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. As we handle the Word of God, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, uh, rightly related to God the Holy Spirit, who's the one who helps us understand His Word and takes it and uses it in our lives to mature us, to make us like Christ. So let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, and I'll pray. Our Father, we're indeed grateful that you have communicated to us, you've revealed yourself to us, you've given us your word. It's complete, it's sufficient, it is the absolute authority in every single area that it addresses. And Father, above all, it reveals to us who you are, your love for us as it's exemplified through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, and that by faith alone we can receive this uh, matchless gift of eternal life, and we are born again, and we have a new life in Christ, which has value beyond anything in the universe. And Father, it is our desire to nurture this life, to grow, to mature, to glorify and honor you in all that we do, and the only way we can do that is by dedicating as much time as possible to studying your word and learning it, learning to think like you would have us to think so that we can address the problems, issues, challenges of our own lives from a biblical viewpoint. Father, guide us as we study this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Starting this week and probably for the next couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about how to be a uh, fruit judge how to evaluate fruit, how to evaluate your fruit, not your wife's fruit, not your husband's fruit, not your kid's fruit, not your neighbor's fruit, but your fruit. So we don't want to be uh, fruit inspectors of other people. That's We'll leave that up to the uh, Lordship Salvation crowd. They're always concerned about checking into everybody else's fruit. But that's the issue in the... Uh, imagery of the illustration in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 to 8. So let's orient our thinking back into the passage since it's been a week. This is one of the most significant warning passages in all of this epistle. The next serious one, or the last serious one, comes in Hebrews chapter 10. But here we read a passage that many have misunderstood, misinterpreted. And it is a serious warning, though, to every believer that there are consequences to spiritual failure in life and spiritual regression. Hebrews 6.4 reads, For it is impossible, and we studied where that should go, and I don't want to lose thought of the emphasis here on the difficulty of this. It's not impossible for God. It is impossible for us, as we saw last time, in terms of the context of Hebrews. Again and again, there are these uh, in reminders that believers are to encourage one another. But when a believer fails, 
and he goes negative to doctrine and entrenches in carnality, it is impossible. We can't talk to them. I don't know how, if you've ever had a close friend or family member just uh, take a nosedive into the swimming pool of carnality and just enjoy splashing around for a while, but they don't want anybody to come along and talk to them about doctrine. They just get as irritated as they can be. And from a human viewpoint and human perspective, it's impossible to get them to recover. It's going to take an act of God. And this is why in verse 3, the writer says, This we will do if God permits. So Hebrews 6, 4, It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been, become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away. That's how it runs together. It's a whole series of descriptions of these believers, and the very last one focuses on their spiritual condition. They have already fallen away. These are aorist participles. So this is true. They've, they're believers. They're regenerate. They've been growing. They've been going somewhere in their spiritual life. And now they have already, past tense completed, fallen away. So it's impossible, the writer says, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. And the point there I made last week is they, these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers, were aligning themselves with the Pharisees by rejecting Christianity. They were going back into Judaism and aligning themselves with the thought of the thought process, the belief system of those who crucified Jesus. And that's what he means here. They are, in, by virtue of their rejection and, re, and reverse uh, decision here to go back into uh, Judaism, they are, in effect, crucifying Christ again. And this is an embarrassment or a shame. And I concluded with five key principles. We have to be reminded that as we can all fail. We can all get involved in carnality, and as long as we're still alive, God has a plan for our life, and you can't out the grace of God. Now, you may sin to the point where you go out under the sin unto death, but as long as you are still breathing, you do have a chance to recover. No sin is unknown by the omniscience of God. So important. There is no sin. I, I was had a, a great conversation a couple of great conversations this week with a uh, young man who is uh, think, thinks he has a gift of pastor teacher engaging uh, another uh, fellow that he works with in conversations about uh, about Christianity and it turns out this other guy was saved but as they got deeper and deeper and deeper into uh, just trying to figure out what what each believed it turned out this fellow was a charismatic and spoke in tongues and healed and did all kinds of things like that. But he also believed that, that if you, that you could lose your salvation and if you die, if, if you didn't, if you died in a state with unrepentant sin, what we would call unconfessed sin, then you wouldn't be saved. See, you just run into these kinds of people all the time. This guy got on the phone to me two or three times and said, well, what do I say to him? And see, that's the way we all should be, not just somebody saying by going to the pastor, but he, he's working full-time. We're all working full-time. We have friends, neighbors, families, co-workers that we should be interacting with uh, spiritually and talking to, and they're going to hit us with stuff. And one of the points that he kept making to this guy was, what sins are you going to commit 
that weren't known by the omniscience of God in eternity past and not covered by the cross. And so many people just don't think about this. They have such a shallow view of God, and they in turn turn around to us and say that we put God in a box. Um, it's just there's no rationality anymore. Second principle, no sin is overlooked by the justice of God. So no sin is unknown by the omniscience of God. You won't surprise God. No sin is overlooked by the justice of God. Every sin was dealt with on the cross. Every sin in history was imputed to Jesus Christ, and the penalty was paid for by Christ on the cross. Third, no sin is too bad, typo there. No sin is too, that should be T-double-O, no sin is too bad for the grace of God. God's grace is greater than any sin that we can uh, commit. No sin is too strong for the omnipotence of God. No sin is too strong for the omnipotence of God. God's power is such that he is able to accomplish that which he intended to accomplish, which was a perfect, sufficient salvation. And uh, fourth, no sin is too harsh not to be overcome by the love of God. God's love provided perfect salvation by sending His Son to die on the cross for us. Now, we went over those in conclusion last time. Well, I've got two... There we go. Now we come to our passage in Hebrews 6, 7. This is the illustration for the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears the thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now, it's very important for us to understand this illustration because there's certain verbiage in this illustration that when people read it, their first blush uh, interpretation of this passage is that it's, it's talking about Loss of salvation that these, if you bear thorns and briars in your life, then you're rejected. You're not going to be saved and you're going to be cursed. And they go to thorns and briars and say, see, what are thorns and briars? Thorns and briars have come into existence because of Adam's sin when the ground was cursed, when the earth was cursed. So see, this is talking about this kind of massive curse for sin like we have in Genesis chapter 3, and the end is to be burned. When do we have burning in the Scripture? We have burning in the Scriptures when unbelievers are sent to the lake of fire. So see, that's what this is talking about. This is an illustration of those uh, failure believers mentioned earlier that lost their salvation, and now they're rejected and they're sent to the lake of fire. And there are many people who believe that. But that's not what this is talking about at all. As we've seen uh, through our study so far that the context indicates that he is talking about believers. They are expected to be able to recover, to press on. They have uh, had solid food in the past, according to the last few verses of chapter 5, but they have to they, because of their rejection, because of their carnality, they have reversed growth. They have regressed. They've gone from being a spiritual adolescent back to being a spiritual infant. And so they're clearly believers. The list of descriptions in verse, verses 4 through 6 describe a believer. 
They have once been enlightened. This comes at regeneration as we study. They have tasted the heavenly gift. The idea of tasting there, if you remember, isn't just the idea of a little nibble or just getting a sense of what uh, the, the impact of the food on the taste buds of your tongue. It's the idea of completely eating something, completely uh, taking it into t- your experience, just as Jesus tasted death for everyone. He didn't just sort of uh, nibble at it around the edges. He, uh, he fully experienced death, spiritual death for everyone. And so this idea of tasting, this metaphor of tasting, has the idea of fully experiencing something. So they fully experienced the heavenly gift, which is salvation. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Another key word, they've become partners with the Holy Spirit, which is what happens to every church-age believer. At the instant of salvation, you entered into a partnership with God the Holy Spirit. Think about that. You're in a partnership with God the Holy Spirit, and the job of your partner is to make you a mature believer and conform you to the image of Christ. Now, he's not going to stop that job. He's going to keep working at that, whether you want him to or not. So even when you take a swan dive into the pool of carnality and just want to swim around in sin for a while, the Holy Spirit is not going to just go sit in a lounge chair somewhere and and passively watch. He's going to be involved in getting your attention through divine discipline and through reminders of doctrine and other things to get back on track. So it may take a while, and uh, but nevertheless, the Holy Spirit doesn't quit working. He is quenched and grieved in his sanctifying or growth-producing ministry. Now he is in a rebuking and a recovery ministry to get you back in, in shape. So he is your partner, and you can't get away from that. Uh, you can't get a divorce from that partner. And have tasted the good word of God, verse 5. And the powers of the age to come. The age to come refers to the millennial kingdom. The key power in the millennial kingdom is that the Holy Spirit will indwell uh, all believers and they won't, they'll all know the Word of God and they won't need to teach uh, one another his neighbor because of this inherent knowledge of Scripture that every believer will have. That's according to Jeremiah chapter 31 and the description of the new covenant in the kingdom. And see, we have a a foreshadowing of that in the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit for the believer in the church age. And so all of these descriptions in verses 4 and 5 describe a genuine believer. And last time we looked at parallel passages that use forms of the Greek verb pipto for falling away. Here it's uh, parapipto. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 4 it was ekpipto. In Revelation chapter uh, uh, two verses, uh, it's probably about verse six or seven, where it talks about the Ephesians who have fallen away from their first love. It was just the word pipto. And so these words describe believers who are born again and who leap into carnality and quit walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So here you have the a specific teaching regarding this in these two verses and then to make it clear like a good preacher he's going to use an illustration 
and the illustration comes out of an agricultural background. And if you're not familiar with agricultural standards in the ancient world, then you might miss what some of this is about, which is what happens to a number of people, and they misinterpret the passage. So we need to look at it very carefully, and we need to understand what the symbols are in this illustration in verses 7 through 8. First of all, we have the earth. The earth is the believer. It is, out of, it is out of the earth that fruit is produced. So earth represents the believer. The second element in this illustration is rain. And we all know that in order for things to grow, they have to have rain. And your grass this year isn't its normal brown in the middle of August like it typically is in Houston because we've had a lot of rain this year. And uh, at least here, now if you go up northwest a little bit, there's still it's still dry there, but we have a lot of rain, and so everything's nice and green, and everything's growing, and looks wonderful. doesn't look like the typical Houston in August. But rain is that which nourishes the soil and provides the nutrients in that soil for it to grow. So that is going to be comparable or analogous in this illustration to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It's the Word of God working in tandem with the Word of God that produces spiritual growth and fruit in the child of God. So earth is the believer, rain is the provision of God, and then the herbs that come forth in verse 7 talks about it bears herbs that are useful. So this talks about the production of good Fruit, which is divine good. So verse 6 focuses on the production of fruit in the life of the believer, that which is useful. And it's useful for whom? And this is where it gets interesting. It's useful for those by whom it is cultivated. So uh, you have, uh, uh, to understand that, thorns and thistles, uh, what we have the instead of uh, herbs in verse 7, the contrast is thorns and briars or thorns and thistles in verse 8, and that represents the production of evil, sin, and human good. And the cultivator, back in verse 7 where it says the herbs that are useful for those by whom it is cultivated, who's doing the cultivating work? It's God. It's God the Father. If the rain represents the Holy Spirit, then this is God the Father. And I think this is analogous to God the Father who is the vine dresser in John 15. And we're going to stay. We we may not get there tonight, but we're going to go into the vine uh, analogy in John chapter 15 in order to tie these things together. These are some of the most crucial images that are used in Scripture for understanding our spiritual life and how it works. Uh, this passage, this illustration here, John 15, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, these are the key chapters in the New Testament to teach on the mechanics of spiritual growth and fruit production which is something that's not understood very well at all in, uh, by, by many uh, churches today, many theologians. So the cultivator is God. See, when the, the earth, that is the believer, bears fruit, it is useful for whom? 
It is useful for God. God uses that when you are a maturing believer and producing fruit, then you become useful to God in terms of Christian service. And that's what this is ultimately going toward, is it's not just about you and your spiritual life and your relationship to God. Don't get involved in a self-centered, self-absorbed vision of your Christian life. When you look at the ultimate uh, uh, value, character quality in the Christian life is love. Love involves relationship with other people. It's not just about you going home, listening to a tape recorder, reading your notes, and it's all about you and your relationship to God. That is a means to an end. And that end is your service within the framework of the body of Christ. Trouble is most churches get, get those things flip-flopped. They, as soon as somebody walks in the door, they want to get them involved in some kind of Christian service, and they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know anything about having a relationship with God. They don't know anything about spiritual dynamics. They don't know anything about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And, and consequently, they end up just producing a lot of wood, hay, and straw. But that is a typical modus operandi. I remember when I was a young pastor, some older guy in the church came up to me and said, Pastor, what you need to do is get these visitors that come to church, get, give them a job to do, and get them working in Sunday school or working in this or working in that. And that's how you build a church. And I said, well, I don't think so. I appreciate your insight and your, your uh, uh, advice, but uh, I, I'm not convinced that's how it works. I think you've got things backwards. So there's always folks who operate that way, and that's how most churches operate. But they don't understand the difference between the result and what causes the result. And as we grow and mature as believers, it is to what? Serve one another in the body of Christ. That is part of our uh, our responsibilities to function in terms of our ambassadorial responsibilities and our royal priesthood. All that comes under the category of Christian service. And I hear too many believers say, well, it's I just want to listen to my tapes, or go over my notes, and you know, study, 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 and they don't get involved in any kind of uh, a Christian life with anybody else. And that is not what Hebrews is talking about. In fact, Hebrews is very much against this kind of solipsistic. Isn't that a good word? If you all don't know that, you can look it up. You know, every now and then we have a vocabulary lesson. It means to be isolated within yourself. And there's too many solipsistic Christians running around because we also live in a world, worldly culture that promotes this kind of individualistic isolation. You go home to your apartment complex or your house in your neighborhood, and you probably don't even know uh, the, the names of uh, more than two or three people on your street. I remember when I was a kid growing up, I can still drive down my parents' street and, name, and tell you the name of the people who lived in each house when I was a kid. But most people today, I can't do that on my street now. Of course, half the, they're just new, new homes, and they're just being built. Half of them are empty. But we live in a world that promotes this kind of isolationism, and that's not the genuine Christian life. But it's remember, we have to remember the difference between spiritual dynamics and ultimate production. So the cultivator is God. He's the one who is working the soil to produce the fruit. So this gives us the elements, the symbols that are in the in the passage. Now it's clear from the passage that the subject is judgment. 
not just when I use the word judgment, I don't don't just mean something negative, something harsh in terms of judgment, casting people to the lake of fire. It's evaluation. There are different kinds of judgments in the scriptures, and we're going to have to decide which judgment it is. So the first point is that the is to recognize that this illustration relates to judgment. But which one are we talking about? Is this the great white throne judgment? Well, this is talking about the great white throne judgments. That's for unbelievers only. Revelation chapter 20. Only unbelievers show up at the great white throne judgment. So this would be talking about the difference between believers and unbelievers. Well, I don't believe that's what this passage is talking about at all. Is it talking about the judgment at the end of the tribulation, the separation of the sheep and the goats? I don't think so. It's not talking about believers versus unbelievers. So that leaves that third option, which is the Bema seat. And here we have our timeline which is chart, which is becoming familiar to most of you. The great white throne judgments at the end of the millennium. There's a judgment at the end of the tribulation. Tribulation unbelievers are uh, sent to uh, a holding place to Tartarus until the great white throne judgment. And then during the tribulation, there is an evaluation of all believers in heaven. This is the judgment seat of Christ, and the word that's used in the Greek for that is the Bema seat. And we'll study that as we go through our study. Vital part of understanding this passage. Now, the next thing that we have to recognize is that this first word here in verse 7, the word for, shows that 7 and 8 are connected grammatically to verses 4 through 6. It is an explanation of the dynamics of verses 4 through 6. So that means that if 4 through 6 is talking about believers, then 7 and 8 must also be talking about believers. We don't have any unbelievers in this passage at all. So that tells us that we have to be talking about the uh, judgment seat of Christ. Now, when we look at the passage and start breaking the illustration down, we read, first of all, for the earth which drinks in the rain. And if the earth represents the believer... And the rain represents the divine grace provision, which God gives equally to every believer. This is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. At the instant of salvation, every one of us got the Holy Spirit to the same degree, to the same measure. Some of you didn't get a little more. Some of you didn't get a little less. If you were part of a charismatic Pentecostal group, you, they, they would teach you that some of you didn't get the full gospel. You only got part of the gospel. And it wasn't until you learned that you have to lay it all on the altar or submit yourself or yield yourself or something like that, some kind of vocabulary like that, that you get the second blessing. Then you get the full gospel. That's what they mean when they talk about full gospel. And you have the full gospel businessmen's fellowship and other groups like that, and that's what they are. They're, uh, they come out of Pentecostal uh, background. But every believer gets the same degree of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has access to the Word of God. We live in an era today that is God is judging this nation by the very uh, proliferation of biblical truth today. Now, you may turn on the television and say, well, where's the biblical truth? And I'm not talking about that. But if you go to 
uh, a decent Christian bookstore, or you just get on the Internet and go to uh, ChristianBooks.com or any number of other uh, websites. You could look, go to publishing houses like Kriegel or Zondervan or Erdman or any number of those. There is more biblical knowledge available today for the average believer than at any time in history. There are more Christian books being published today, and since the mid-70s, there has been an enormous growth in the reprint business, where they're going back and they're reprinting classics of, of theology and biblical commentaries and devotional books from the 18th century and 17th century and 16th century. I mean, it's just unbelievable how much doctrine is available to you. Not only that, but we have the Internet and you have MP3s and you have DVDs. And I can name you probably 20 solid doctrinal pastors right now who have uh, Internet ministries. And you can go home and, and listen to everything every one of those men has taught during their entire ministries from now until the day you die and never sleep and never do anything else but listen to doctrine. I mean, there is so much available today, and you can get computer programs that are so sophisticated that uh, you just can't even imagine all the stuff you can do in terms of Bible study. And yet we live in a culture that is um, headed spiritually downhill faster than any culture in history just about, and they have rejected all of this spiritual truth that is available. And, and most Christians, most Genuine, regenerate believers reject it too. They'd rather go to church and sing and clap and feel good and have a little sermonette for Christianettes and go home and think that they actually are having an experience with God. And they're just having an experience with the God idol they created in their own mind, and they're worshiping that. And they're not going anywhere. So we live in a, a world today that ha- is being judged because of its failure to to utilize what's being given in terms of the Word of God. The Word of God is the primary growth agent in the Scriptures. First Peter 2.2 2 is newborn babes desire. That's a command. We are to desire. We are commanded to desire the pure milk of the Word like a newborn baby. You ever heard a newborn baby when they're hungry? What do they do? They scream, they cry, and they throw a tantrum. And that's how believers should be if they're not getting fed the Word of God. And yet most of them don't do that. They don't have any appetite anymore. But like newborn babes, we are to desire the pure milk of the world that you may grow thereby. The basis for growth is the Word of God. It's not hymn singing. Hymns are wonderful. Hymn singing is a production of the Holy Spirit as part of corporate worship. It's valid. It's important. It's significant. It should be done well, but it doesn't produce spiritual growth. But it is a part of our spiritual priesthood. But we grow by the study of the Word of God. Second Peter 3.18, we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And... This is how we advance. It's through the knowledge of the Word of God. When Jesus was talking to Peter, after uh, in John chapter 21, after or John, yeah, John chapter 21, after they have uh, after the resurrection, and he says, "Peter, do you love me?" Peter said, "Oh yes, Lord, I love you." Jesus said, "Feed my sheep." How do you feed the sheep? You teach them the Word of God. 
Uh, he didn't say administer the congregation. He didn't say be a focus on leadership skills and leadership dynamics and be a good facilitator. Uh, this is what most, you may not know this. Y'all, I know some of you are pretty isolated, but primarily that's what's coming out of too many seminaries today is men who are uh, administrators and managers and and CEOs of a corporation. And you just watch what goes on on the media in most churches. They're just businesses or businesses, as we say here in Texas. And they're not ministries anymore. It's all about money and production and selling tapes and selling books and selling prayer claws and selling holy oil to be anointed with and all this other stuff, it doesn't have anything to do with biblical Christianity anymore. But the focus is on the Word of God. And that is the only thing that we're going to grow with. But it's the Holy Spirit who enacts that, who makes that happen, because the Christian life isn't just a matter of academics. It's not just a matter of learning doctrine. If, if it were just a matter of learning and studying the Bible, then there would be a lot more mature believers because you can go to a lot of uh, Bible colleges and seminaries and people can learn all kinds of stuff, but there's no spiritual growth. There is a, there is a spiritual dynamic created by God the Holy Spirit who is the fruit producer. He's the one who is uh, taking the doctrine and producing growth and maturity in our lives. And if we aren't in right relationship to him, and if you don't know how to be in right relationship with him, then you're, you're going to be trying to grow spiritually, and all you're doing is pulling yourself up by the human good of your own spiritual bootstraps, and it's not going to get you anywhere. You, you may have a moral life. You may have a good life. You can even have a decent uh, family life. You can become successful in business. But it doesn't have anything to do with God the Holy Spirit because you don't know how that works. So it's that tandem production of God the Holy Spirit working with the Word of God. That's the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to produce spiritual growth. Now, let's d- go on and develop our uh, illustration a little more. We saw first of all that it relates. The illustration relates to judgment. Second, the four relates it back to the previous section. So we know we're talking about believers and the evaluation of believers. Third, we have the focus on uh, the grace of God and His provision. And then fourth, every believer has the same spiritual potential. Every believer, from the minute you trust Jesus Christ as a, as your Savior. You have the same potential as everybody else in this room and every other believer in history. The same potential to grow to spiritual maturity. And you have the same assets. You have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. God has given you everything. That's what we mean by sufficient. That one word, sufficient, means that the Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. You don't need anything else to figure out how to lit, how to solve the problems and the difficulties and uh, in your life and to grow to spiritual maturity. This is one of the things that we used to just fight like crazy, still do. Uh, start back in the 70s when I was going through seminary, the big rage was everybody was going into Christian counseling because so many pastors, when they when they become pastors, they have all these people coming to them with marriage problems and with problems with their kids, problems in life, whatever it may be, and they want counseling. 
And I can't tell you how many guys I knew who would go to seminary for a couple of years and then they would shift and they would go to some school so that they could get a degree in psychology so they could help people. And the issue is, okay, what we're really saying here is knowing the Bible isn't enough to help people. You have to know uh, all of this methodology that comes out of out of humanistic psychology. In other words, up until Freud, you really couldn't help people. What did those people do in the in the early 1800s for a Christian life? I mean, those poor people were miserable. They didn't know anything about. Uh, Psychology. They didn't know anything about uh, personal counseling. They didn't know how to get into all, all this stuff about uh, self-image. Gee, we didn't even have this vocabulary until the, the middle of the 20th century. Now we have it. We're so great. We're, we're so far advanced above all these other believers. We don't need the Bible. We just need a couple of good uh, master's degrees in psychology and counseling, and then we can help people. No, the Scripture says that the Bible is the source of help, that no matter what you've gone through in life, the grace of God and the Word of God is all you need to solve the problems in life. The trouble is most people aren't willing to trust God, and they're not willing to do what the Bible says, and so they end up saying, well, you know, doctrine really doesn't work. No, it's not that doctrine doesn't work, it's that you didn't work the doctrine. And so you're not getting anywhere because you want you still want God to help you do it your way. And until you realize that God only wants you to do it His way, you're not going to get anywhere in the Christian life. And in the old days, you know what they used to call pastors? Pastors were soul doctors, doctors of the soul. Because it was the Word of God that would heal the problems of your soul. I thought that was great. Now you've got to be a doctor in psychology to help people. If you're not certified by the state, well, you can't even do counseling or you might be open to a lawsuit. You see where we've gone? We live in a lovely world. So every believer has these same assets. The Word of God, the grace of God, the Spirit of God, the cross of Christ are sufficient. They're all you need. Isn't that wonderful? That's all you need. But the trouble is you have to learn about those things. You have to learn about all those assets. You can't just sit at home with your Bible open and get it all. You're going to get a little bit of it, but you're not going to get most of it. You have to go to church. You have to go listen to somebody who knows the Word of God and can study the Word of God and can teach you the Word of God so that you can gradually learn all these magnificent promises that God's given us and you can learn all about these assets and just how to grow and mature as a believer. So, the rain represents all that God gives us. He gives the believer everything he needs. Now, there's some work going on here, but you're not the one doing the work. Remember the illustration? The earth is the believer. The believer is receiving the rain. The earth is passive to God's gift of everything it needs in order to produce fruit. But we're introduced to this uh, character in the analogy who's called the cultivator, the one who, uh, by whom it is cultivated. So somebody's working the soil in order to produce fruit. And guess who that is? That's God the Father. He is working in every believer's life through God the Holy Spirit to produce spiritual growth in the life of the believer. And it's as a result of his work in the on the soil that eventually fruit is produced. But you see, the other soil has nobody tilling it. 
Not because they're not saved, but because they're not in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit. That tilling work only happens when you're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, when you're walking by the Spirit, when you're being filled by the Spirit, when you're abiding in Christ. All those terms are uh, are synonymous terms in the Scripture. So it is God who does the work. Isn't it great? That's what grace is all about. God provides the means, God provides the work, and God provides the production. All we have to do is to exercise our volition to be willing to do what God says to do in terms of learning the Word of God, and God does the rest. See, the difference between these two soils is not a difference in capability. It's not a difference of potential. It's not a difference of IQ. It's not a difference of family life. It's not a difference of Bible translation. It's a difference of volition. What makes the difference between the two is that the soil that produces fruit is soil that is willing to do what God says to do and to implement the procedures and is positive to the Word of God. And the soil that produces thorns and thistles is the soil that is not willing. What makes the difference is that volition. Your volition is so important. Your volition has made you the person you are today, good, bad, or indifferent. You are today the product of your volition, and your volition, your will, is what's going to determine what you're going to be in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. You are becoming today what you will be, character-wise, in the millennial kingdom. Now, in the millennial kingdom, you'll be in a resurrection body, and you won't have a sin nature, but the capacities that you have, the the uh, uh, responsibility, Abilities that you'll be able to handle are going to be determined by your spiritual growth and advance today. So the decisions you make today will determine who you will be and what you will do in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. So every, the, the key issue between the two is the individual volition. Now, let's look at these two uh, divisions again. In verse 7, the earth is the believer, drinks in or takes in the rain that is provided for by God, and bears herbs useful by those by whom it is cultivated, produces divine good, and as a result of the divine good, notice this, the divine good is produced by the one who cultivates it. God does the cultivation, which produces fruit, and that's blessed. It doesn't have anything to do with you and your works. It has to do with God and His works. But in contrast, the soil of the unbelieving believer, as it were, the believer who is not trusting God, the believer who is relying upon his own gifts, his own abilities, his own nature, bears thorns and briars. So it produces a human good, no fruit. It's nothing of value to God, to uh, to themselves, to anybody. And it is rejected. Now, that's really a bad translation. It's the, the Greek words at the bottom. It's ah. Dakimas. The A at the beginning is a negative. It's called the alpha privative, if you know Greek. It's, a, it's like the prefix UN in English. It negates the word. So uh, the word dakimas is a noun meaning to be qualified, to be worthy, to pass the test. Uh, the verb dakimazo is the word that's used there in uh, James chapter uh, 1 verses 2 through 4 they count it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials knowing that the 
testing, the evaluation, the dokimazo, the evaluation of your faith uh, produces uh, maturity, pr- produces perfection. So what we have here is that the, the, the negative soil bears thorns and thistles, thorns and briars, and it is rejected. Now this word adakimas means to be unapproved. It's or to be unqualified, unworthy, spurious, worthless. In a passive sense, it means to be disapproved, discredited, rejected, or cast away. And probably the best translation is discredited. It is discredited because it is failing to grow. And it and as we'll see, this word is used in a number of passages. First Corinthians nine twenty seven is a good passage. We'll look at that in a minute. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen five through seven, but it's also used, or a form of this word is used in First Corinthians chapter three at the judgment seat of Christ. That believers who produce wood, hay, and straw don't pass the test; they fail the dokimazo. There you have the verb for evaluation. They fail that, and that's what it's talking about here: is the believer who produces wood, hay, and straw. And what happens to that wood, hay, and straw in First Corinthians chapter three? Uh, we'll go there, but if you remember, that's where the believer's works are all piled up. Good works, bad works, divine good, human good. At the judgment seat of Christ, the production of your life is piled up, and the image is now we're going to purify it. We're going to burn off all the garbage. And so a fire is lit, and all the wood, hay, and straw is burned up, and whatever's left is the basis for rewards. What's left is divine good, gold, silver, precious stones. So after at the Bema seat... Judgment seat of Christ, there's this purification process. All of the uh, that which is unworthy is discredited and burned up or cast away. That's the imagery here of this burning. It's not the burning of hell. It is the burning of purification and judgment that will take place at the at the judgment seat of Christ. So the second category isn't talking about an unbeliever. It's talking about a believer who hasn't responded to the grace of God and therefore produces wood, hay, and straw. Now, there's a couple of good passages to indicate this use of of adakimas. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uses it in Proverbs 25, verse 4. Take away the dross from silver. It's that picture of refining the silver that in any kind of a metal there are various impurities. And so it is through heat that those impurities are burned, burned away. So that what you're focusing on is what's left, the silver or the gold or whatever. And that's what the focus is. At the judgment seat of Christ, the focus isn't on how you failed. There's so many folks who worry about that. Well, they don't want every... Uh, it's going to be focused on how many times I failed Jesus. But that's not what the focus is. The focus is to burn away all of that so what's left that's visible is what, what you did positively in terms of walking by the Spirit and the fruit that the Holy Spirit produced in your life. First uh, Corinthians 9.24 expands on this in the New Testament. And so we'll just look at this. Paul uses the a metaphor of the Olympics. I just love it how the Scripture used these everyday illustrations that people were used to. Jesus talks about fishing. He talks about 
feeding the sheep to uh, men who have an agricultural background understand what that is all about. Uh, Paul talks about the races, the Olympics. Uh, this is they, they were as aware of the athletic contest in their day as people are in our day. Sports have been around for a long time. So Paul uses the analogy of an Olympic race to talk about uh, the spiritual life. This is a, a short race. He says, Do you not know that all those who run in a stadium... Uh, all run, but only one receives the prize. And the idea of running is the idea of going forward uh, with speed, and that should be the, the fact in every believer's life. We should be pressing on, uh, running a race, running forward in the Christian life, not just kind of uh, dawdling along or skipping along uh, like... Uh, who was it, Prissy, and uh, Gone with the Wind? Remember when she's just dawdling along, you know, running her hand along the picket fence? See, some of you need to watch Gone with the Wind. Running a race, a stadium which measures a distance of about 192 meters. It's one-eighth of a mile, so it's a rather short race. All those who run in a race run, but only one receives the prize. So he's using an illustration from the Olympics in ancient Greece. Here's a map. There were... Olympics held in Olympia, in Nemea, which was to the southwest of Corinth, in Isthmia, which was very close to Corinth, right there uh, at the uh, Corinthian, at the Isthmus of Corinth, which goes from the Peloponnese Peninsula on the on the south there to the mainland of Greece up to the north, Athens, and then Delphi. This is where they had the uh, Olympic contests in ancient Greece. And this gives you a little bit of a visual of what that was like standing on top of the uh, Acre Corinth looking out over the Gulf of Corinth. And if you can notice, just over here on the right, you see this land mass. And this is going across. This is the Isthmus of Corinth going across to uh, the mainland. Uh, Athens would be off to the right, and Delphi would be up into this uh um, mountainous area uh, where the where I'm pointing. This is another look looking directly at the at the isthmus of Corinth, and then Athens would be off to the right. So this is the area where they held the Isthmian Games. This is uh, some of the ruins there, the Roman baths uh, left over at Isthmia. Uh, th- these were as big an event in their day as in our day. You read the writings of the ancient Greeks, and they used to complain about all the people that would come and uh, come into these cities, and they would set up all of their tents, and they didn't have uh, good sanitation. They had to worry about digging latrines and you know all the other things that go with having twenty or 30,000 people descend on a small a uh, small village of a couple of thousand for a couple of weeks to run the, the game. You have the same logistic problems today. Here's a reconstruction of the starting line of the gate at Isthmia where they were running the, the, the races. Now remember, Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians, and he is writing to the Corinthians, and the, this was the games that were held just outside of the town of Corinth. Some of the... Uh, Pottery and the artist, artist uh, uh, rendition of some of the athletic contests, and this is the starting blocks up at uh, up at Delphi, up at the 
course at Delphi. This was the training area where the athletes would go to train for the races up at Delphi. And this is the, uh, the, the stadium where they ran the races at Delphi. So this is exactly what Paul is talking about. And every Greek understood exactly what was under discussion. So he said, run the race in such a way that you may win. You know, we live in a world today where people don't like to be winners. They don't want to teach their kids to win. Everybody's going to go play t-ball and everybody's going to win. They don't teach these lessons that sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But in the Christian life, you want to be a winner. You want to do what you have to do in order to grow so that you can gain the prize. And the prize is a reward for faithfully serving the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with being motivated by that. Paul's using that to motivate people right here. I've heard Christians say, well, I, I'm just so spiritual. I'm going to serve the Lord, and I don't care about a reward. That's just so carnal. Wait a minute. Paul said that we're to compete for the prize. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. That means that you have to set a plan. You have to realize there are some things you can't do. It's great to eat whatever you want to eat, but if you're in training for an athletic contest, you can't eat certain things, not if you want to win. And that's a principle that every believer has to learn. It's not that some things are wrong. It's that they're a distraction. They won't allow you to accomplish the goal of growing and maturing as a believer. You all could be home or out doing all kinds of things. You could be taking night classes. You could be going out and taking dancing lessons. You could be doing all kinds of things. You could be working out at the gym tonight. You could be doing all kinds of things that aren't immoral or illegal. But they would be a distraction from your spiritual growth. And so you have come to understand the importance of getting rid of certain things in your life, uh, things that you enjoy doing, simply because it's a distraction to your spiritual life. That's what Paul is talking about here. And he says now in the athletic contests, if they do all this and the prize is nothing more than, an, than a perishable wreath, some contests it was just a laurel wreath, others it was a wreath of withered celery leaves. How would you like that for a prize? You're going to spend a year in training to win a race, and all you're going to get for it, you're not even going to get a T-shirt. You're just going to get a, a wreath of withered celery leaves. And others you've got regular celery leaves, but it wouldn't be long before they would wither. So Paul says they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. That which we get is going to last for eternity. It's the only thing that we're going to take with us. And yet more people are just so consumed with focusing on all the material gains in life. And yet what Scripture says, you can't take any of that with you, but what you can take with you is the spiritual growth that you produce in this life. And that is going to be determinative at the judgment seat of Christ and in the millennial kingdom. The, the wreath there, the word there for wreath is Stephanos, which is the word that is used. We'll run across this in, in uh, Revelation chapter 5. This is the crown that is earned. Uh, not the diademos, which is a crown of royalty, but this is the crown that is earned. It is a prize or, or a reward. So Paul says, therefore I run thus in this manner. Not with uncertainty. Why? Because we have the certainty of Scripture. I fight not as one who beats the air. I'm not just shadow boxing. 
He says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself, let me get to the right word here, I myself should become disqualified. That's the same word we have over in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 8. Disqualified, adakimas, that the Apostle Paul realized that he could still blow it. He, he could still decide to go negative and he could he could get involved in extended carnality and sin and and it would disqualify him from the prize. Now that's true for Paul. How much more true do you think that is for the rest of us? So we have to be diligent and watch over our spiritual life so that we can be qualified to win the prize. We lost that. So we go to the Bema Seat of Christ. Back to our chart here. The Judgment Seat of Christ is where we uh, are going to be evaluated. Now, one last phrase to comment on. See if I have this passage. Um, In Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about, If it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed. That's the Greek word ingus. It's close. It's expected. It is not cursed. But let's talk about this word curse for just a minute. A curse in Scripture is not some kind of juju black magic. It is not some sort of uh, evil eye or some sort of a cult uh, malediction. It is a, a curse in Scripture is an expression of the justice of God. It is an expression of the judgment of God, so that when you have the earth is cursed in Genesis chapter three because of Adam, Adam's sin, it is a judgment on the earth from the justice of God. It is not uh, some sort of occultic type of of curse. So what we're talking about here is someone close to judgment. It doesn't mean they are judged. It doesn't mean they lose their eternal life. It just means that they are close to significant divine. Discipline, and if they aren't careful, if they don't recover, then the end result is that they're going to have everything burned up, which is what happens to all human good at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, as we look at this whole um, illustration here, it builds on an agricultural Reality. Pliny the Elder, who was a, a Roman natural scientist who lived during the first century AD, from about uh, AD 16, he died towards uh, the late part of the first century. So his lifespan overlapped that of the of the um, uh, New Testament. Wrote in his natural book of natural science, he said. Uh, regarding agriculture, he said, Some people also set fire to the stubble in the field. The chief reason, however, for this this plan is to burn up the seed of the wheat. In other words, burning is not just a picture of judgment, but it is a picture in the life of, of removing the impurities, its divine discipline to get straightened up to produce that which is good. Now, that's an important thing to understand here because the writer of Hebrews is not just talking about the eventual uh, judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, but also a temporal discipline. He's warning them that if they don't recover, then they can face serious divine discipline 
in time, and this is related to making trying, uh, God's attempt to make them more productive. And we need to understand that because this helps us to see the whole mechanics of the spiritual life. The same imagery is used in numerous passages, which I've referred to already, John 15, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5. And so we'll come back next time and we'll look at how this imagery is used by the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 15 to teach about how we produce fruit in the spiritual life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it. We pray that uh, God the Holy Spirit would take this challenge from the writer of Hebrews and make it a personal challenge to each of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.